and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal, and unfortunately, my co-host Tracy Alloway is out this week, and it's especially unfortunate because we're going to be discussing one of uh, Tracy's favorite topics, and that is poker. And of course, as longtime listeners know, that's kind of a joke because it is not one of Tracy's favorite topics. It's one of my favorite topics, and she always uh, reluctantly uh, agrees to uh, to do these episodes on this subject. Nonetheless, she would have actually wanted to make this one. It just didn't work uh, scheduling-wise, uh, because today we're not only speaking to uh, one of the most successful poker players of all time, and in fact, by one measure, the most successful poker player of all time. The guest today got his start not by playing poker, but by playing a game that uh, Tracy herself is really interested in, uh, genuinely, which is not poker. So uh, without further ado, I want to bring in our guest today and talk about how he became successful, how he got his start in the game. Bryn Kenny, uh, thank you very much for joining us yeah, or joining me. It feels uh, yeah, great to be here. You were, the, by one ranking, the number one most winningest tournament poker player of all time. There's this database called the Hendon Mob. It tracks uh, tournament winnings, and you're number one on there, right? Yeah, which is pretty cool. I mean, actually, for a long time, I always said that I would hit number one in poker. And I mean, I won the one or chopped the biggest tournament of all time this year, which like catapulted me from number four to number one. So I was looking at this database. It's online. It's called the Hendon Mob. You should check it out. And you've won about $55 million in total tournament money. But you mentioned that tournament. And I couldn't believe this. I thought maybe I was looking at a typo. But you, you won $20 million in a single tournament, and I didn't even realize prize pots got this big ever. So how is there a tournament that had a $20 million prize? Yeah, so there's only been about three tournaments of all time with about the, with this uh, prize. This one was ran by uh, guys at Triton Poker, where pretty much I think for any high-stakes tournament, the most important thing to draw good attendance or strong attendance is um, by having a bunch of VIP players. So they they made a really good ruling in this one where if you were a pro and you wanted to play, you had to get an invite from a VIP player. Like you couldn't just go and play there, which made it an exclusive tournament and one that... What does that mean, a VIP player? How is that different from a I guess businessman, I should have said instead, yeah. So basically... What it was was this gigantic buy-in tournament. It was like a million dollars to buy-in. Or yeah, like, like a million that. pounds to buy-in. Million pounds plus fifty thousand pounds uh, char- given to charity to buy-in. But the it's a mix of poker pros and just like people who have a ton of money that probably aren't pros, but like the idea of being in a tournament with pros. Yeah, exactly. But then also like the idea where it's 50-50 pros to recreational players, where usual tournament for high stakes could be. 95% pros or something. So it makes it much more enticing to come and play where actually in the beginning of the tournament for the first six levels, you played with only, if you were a businessman, you played yeah. with only businessman. And if you were a pro, you played with only pros. And then it mixed in afterwards. This makes sense. So if you were to just have a million dollar buy-in tournament and it were just pros, that's not that appealing. And it's just people who are really good going up against each other. But the businessmen get something out of it because they get to play with pros, and the pros get something out of it because businessmen are probably easier money. 
another pros. Yeah, exactly. So a bunch more pros will be able to play and sell yeah. action pretty much. Because once like a buying gets so big, it pretty much comes down to how good the other people in the yeah. community that buy action think that you are. Explain this. So if a buy-in is a million dollars and you want to enter that tournament, you would sell some of your action to investors. So maybe someone buys in or buys a piece of you for that tournament for... 50,000 or 100,000 or whatever it is. Talk about that market where a pro sells action. How does that work? How do you find the people who want to stake you? Yeah, so pretty much, I mean, if you're talking about buying pieces in huge tournaments like million or yeah. 250,000 or so, it's like a small group of people who invest pretty much. Unless if you have an outside businessman who wants to invest in you or stake you, which yeah. happens very rare. So pretty much the other like best p poker players in the world have to think that you're one of the best poker players in the world also. And then there's a whole market, uh, like a markup scale also, okay. where some people will let's say sell to that sell to the tournament at no markup and some people will sell at uh, let's say a 1.1 premium so they're everything they're selling they're getting paid a 10% premium and this is like their cut of oh. their expected value it's like the investor and the player sharing whatever they feel like the expected value is of that tournament so in a particularly juicy tournament let's say there's a lot of rich businessmen and there's only a handful of pros and so theoretically, all the pros, because they're better than the businessmen, have some reason to expect that they'll be profitable. Because you have access to that tournament, you can charge a premium to the investor such that maybe they buy 10% of your uh, initial winnings, but they actually pay you 11%. And so you're kind of pocketing that premium right off the bat. Exactly. And you're just getting a better price for whatever piece right. you're having of yourself. Or even there's been cases where someone will sell 95% of themselves, yeah. wind up with a 5% free roll or so, right. and pay nothing for the tournament. Got it. No, that makes sense. You know, when I was most closely paying attention to poker, it was like a lot of people, it was, there was the poker boom of the mid-aughts, and then the, uh, the World Series became this big thing, and those buy-ins were like, I think, $10,000. And a big buy-in... Like sometimes I think there was there was like a fifty thousand dollar buy in I remember from the World Series. When did this world of mega huge buy ins emerge, where you'd have a tournament organized and the buy in was actually a million dollars? Yeah, the millions. I think the first one was maybe five years ago, where they ran a one drop tournament, where they got a lot of recreational players. Yeah. Like Guy Lip Laliberte uh, ran it for his uh, organization and had. One drop, it was called, and had a bunch of his friends play and a bunch of other businessmen. What does that mean, play. one drop? That's what it was, that's the name for oh, it, okay. the World Series. And last year, actually, they had the. I think it'll be the last one drop since it had pretty much no recreational players. So, I mean, it can never survive like that. Is the thing. It all comes down to if you're going to raise the stakes for super high, yeah. you need to have a few guys who are playing for fun, pretty much, right. to make it so that. People are going to want to gamble big that they have a decent advantage. Pro poker doesn't work without, frankly, people who are not that good at it playing. Like, you can't just be pros playing against each other. Right? Yeah, I mean, then, like, the best pros are just going to eat the, like, decent right. pros. But then those guys will stop playing after and a little bit, too. Over. Yeah, exactly. So has the, the mega buy-in tournament, you could sort of argue is essentially a market response to the collapse of the poker bubble 
that brought in a lot of sort of medium or small dollar people who wanted to play. Maybe people who, uh, you know, they did all right online, but weren't amazing or people with a modest amount of money that maybe going to Vegas for the tournament was kind of a vacation. That market sort of collapsed. So in its wake, the only real opportunity for like really top-notch pros is the sort of mega buy-in level with like people with more money than God who want to play with guys like you. Yeah, because like, I mean, when you're younger, you don't even really think about it. You spend so much money traveling and playing yeah. main events where the buy-in's 5,000, 10,000. And unless if you're one of like the biggest crushers, you're not really going to be doing so well with all the e expenses that you have to pay. Right. So it's completely different. Once you get older, you realize you need to make, yeah. if you're at the top of the game, you want to be making more for your time or playing higher stakes if it's possible. So, I mean, Triton didn't amazing job where they found a way to make it more fun for the recreational players where they played with half field of recreational players i thought that was a genius idea actually and that's why they instead of uh i think the one drop the last one drop had maybe 21 players in the last triton uh, million which was even a bit bigger buy-in uh same rake i think had over double the field like 56 players, and I think that it'll only go up. Because yeah. a lot of people who weren't there watch this amazing production that they put on also, and it's like, oh, man, if I could have went and played, right. I love poker, why shouldn't I go and play? So I think for the highest stakes, there's just been a great rise. I think maybe seven years ago or so was the first time a 100K event even happened. Yeah. And back then, there would be two big 25Ks a year, one in Bahamas, one in Monte Carlo. Now there's like a 25K every week or every other week somewhere. 100K is at every festival. Now, I think it's even going to make a turn to 250K buy-ins towards every festival. Yeah. Maybe two, three million dollar buy-ins a year or so. Does the game change at those levels? I mean, theoretically, it shouldn't. But when there's that much money on the line and when you're looking at potentially a $20 million payout or more for the winner, does the psychology of the game change? Well, it like changes a bit in two ways where... If you're playing a big field of players, you're not really playing against the same people all the time, where right. if you're playing these events, you're playing against the same people all the time. So your strategy potentially could be a style that you think works well against the style that everybody else is playing. And then, of course, at the highest stakes, I mean, you need to look for any type of advantage you kind of can, where I'll even walk into a room and feel how all the people are feeling and the people maybe who aren't having a good day aren't very confident that day like that's who you really want to go after yeah. aren't going to be thinking as clear and the guys who come in just like they had enough sleep they've been winning recently it's like oh okay stay away from these guys where i would always see it as like a jungle do you yeah. want to go against like the other do you really want to hunt against the other strongest animals or do you want to go against like the weakest animals and right like try to play cautious in the other senses. So in the ultra high stakes, sort of opponent selection is a more important facet of the game. For me, at least, I don't think for most, I, th I don't think most people really think about it. I think they've geared themselves more on a math based GTO yeah. style, perfect strategy. Which that GTO? It's like game theory optimal. Oh, it's yeah, called. Yeah. So this is what everybody says that they're playing this game theory optimal strategy and studying charts and looking at numbers, which works for sure. But 
the thing is, I just feel like it doesn't work as well as everybody really thinks because you would need to input so many different uh, variations of how people play to actually figure out what the real chart is. So, like, for instance, if yeah. you're studying a chart that says this is the best style to play, it's only the best style to play versus the style that right. the numbers are input up against. Right. So let's say now another person's playing a completely different style and you're playing the same GTO that you yeah. think is unexplored and perfect yeah that may be true but you're also going to be playing completely incorrect in some scenarios where you're just like not adjusting what your own chart should be based on what their range actually is right intuitively if you think about like the old days and those uh those uh world series events with thousands of players many of whom sort of came up through online it's probably somewhat easy to play at least in the early rounds a sort of gto style in which everyone's sort of this generic online player. I imagine in a tournament with just 50 people and you could sort of identify them all, you can't just take it for granted that there's going to be this sort of generic optimal play. And that probably, I guess what you're saying is it requires someone to really shift gears and to actually change their style of play because there's just so few uh, such a variation in what you're going to be up against. Yeah, exactly. Because, I mean, deep in a tournament when you're playing for so much, it's tough to really just blank out that you're not playing for so much and that it's a normal day. Yeah. Like, that's the most important thing. When I was in the Triton Million Dollar Buy-In, I kept honestly having to tell myself, hey, look, it's a normal day, not even think it's like a normal yeah. day. You have to tell yourself, trick yourself in whatever way. How do you do that? How do you trick yourself? What's your I mean, technique? like, breathing and kind of just trying to get myself in my my own zone and my own space where I don't care about anything else that's going on, which when you're getting messages from every single person that you know, good luck, and they're all watching and you have this big production. Shouldn't you turn off your phone? Yeah, I mean, kind of, I guess. But also I'm writing like my mom and grandma like yeah. to go and watch it and some friends like right. to make sure that they could watch it. And I don't think that really, I mean, when you wake up, I was barely sleeping and barely eating anyway. I got myself into some type of trance, I would say, nice. where I didn't really care. I gambled way too much than any, like, any feasible person would want to gamble in one tournament, especially where, like, the number of guys would say that you maybe make 10 or tw maybe the biggest winner makes 20 or 30% yeah. or something. I just, uh, I don't know, when the tournament got announced, I just felt like... It was a perfect tournament for me with half businessmen and yeah. half pros. And for like the maybe four months before, I kind of told myself that this is a tournament for me and just prepared myself in every way. Let's say my dad would do research and, uh, and my dad and girlfriend would do research and find me like uh, brain pills that I should take to keep like optimal, have changed my diet completely, just go and take a road trip, turn my phone off for a bit. Just, I think the most important thing is if you're gambling for huge amounts or in a spot where you're taking huge risks. So trading is the same. You have to feel your best and your most relaxed. And yeah. whatever makes you feel your best and most relaxed is exactly what you should do because you're going to make big gambles or big moves not i mean it's always a gamble even right. if it's a great decision in trading and yeah. poker you're gonna have to just feel good no matter what and be able to take a hit no matter what
let's go back. I mentioned in the intro that uh, Tracy, it's really sad that she's not here because although she's normally a little cool on the poker episodes, you have a background that she was really interested in when she saw, and that is you started prior to playing poker as you played the card game uh, Magic the Gathering, and you were a pro at that, right? Yeah, I mean, I, it's considered pro. You were doing yeah. really well. What it, explain to people who haven't played that the sort of essence of that card game, which is its own cultural phenomenon, and the um, the crossover skills that you had with that game that lent themselves to the poker table. Yeah, so Magic was like a great game. I played mostly from 12. I don't remember if it was 12 or 13 that I started playing until I turned 16. There was a junior super series, it was called. So it was all people 15 and under. So actually, I traveled just from like Long Beach I was living in. I would travel to Brooklyn and New York City and New Jersey and sometimes uh, Washington, D.C. Even my mom would take me to and Baltimore and fly to Florida even and San Diego just for these magic events where it's a car it's like a strategy card game i would say it's like chess with cards but a lot of interchangeable factors and more luck than chess instead of because it's hard to really compare it to anything because the other comparison is to like a pokemon or a Yu-Gi-Oh, where it's not really the same at all there's not much strategy or there's some strategy in these games but a way more strategy in magic where the most important thing I think that it did was it taught me to just play a game just to have in my head just to win, to make the best decision and have your goal just to survive, to accumulate, to win, not care about anything else where I'd already had my mind set after playing Magic once I started playing poker where I was pretty much desensitized with the money hey, involved. Explain that just to win because intuitively everyone plays games to win. So what do you mean specifically when you say get yourself in a mindset just to win? Well, poker, when you get into your first spots where you're playing big pots or yeah. in tournaments where the prize, where the pay jumps are very big pay jumps, you find yourself in a, in a situation you've never seen before. And even if it's a situation that you've seen before, there are going to be times in life when you are do, not doing as well. And when you're deep in a tournament, you see these big amounts of money up top. If you think about the money that you're playing for, you're putting yourself at a disadvantage if you're playing against someone like me because I'm trying to scout so- exactly that. I'm trying to see the people who it feels like they are playing less hands and they're they're thinking more about the money and just going up in pay jumps because it's very easy to push these guys off their hands with big bets on the river. Are these, when you're talking about the people you're spotting, are these people who are, say, trying to backdoor themselves into the money just by surviving? They see when the cutoff is going to be. They know how many more players need to be eliminated before it's money. And so, in other words, the big opportunities are exploiting those people who get anxious around the bubble. Yeah. Is that sort of what you're saying? Yeah, around the bubble and also when the pay jumps become large amounts of money at final tables and high roller events also. With Magic, are the tournaments structured the same way? Is that... Well, the different thing is in poker, you would just have chips and accumulate chips. In Magic, you would play one-on-one rounds versus people. Yeah. And then at the end of however many rounds are, it would formulate into a top eight, like a playoff pretty much. Two questions. So first, when did you realize playing Magic, I assumed you maybe just started playing against friends like most people did, that you were like better than them? What would you attribute, like what did you have even when you were just sort of an amateur just picking it up? 
that you would say like made the difference between you versus them? So it was very random where I got uh, I got introduced to magic at a family picnic where one of my cousins brought some uh, magic starter decks and I asked my mom, I guess, at the picnic, hey, I want to uh, get these cards. And I think it was because I had already a um, connection to cards where before I could read, my mom and dad, they said that uh, they would show me 75 different baseball uh, cards. And I knew the name and position of all the people before I could read. Wow. So one of the things for sure that has helped me in magic and in poker is that I have a phenomenal memory. Like better than I've ever seen anyone else have where I've heard other people having photographic memories. I can pretty much see like a video replaying in my head where not only do I remember hands that I play against people yeah. or uh, tendencies that they have. I remember even who's at the table and saw these type of hands. So the way that they think oh. about me. So in magic, I got very good, I would say, just because... I pretty much go all in with anything that I'm interested in. So all I would really think about was making different... At school, I remember I would just be writing different deck lists that I would be making yeah. in class, not really care about oh, school. So when you say go all in, you mean in your life, like you devoted yourself to it? Yeah, like I mean poker. I started playing poker mostly at 17, and from 17 to 29, I pretty much played... Every waking hour I had, uh, even when I would travel around to other countries, I wouldn't do anything else other than play poker. Didn't take a single vacation. Literally, I had only one focus where even friends of mine or one friend was telling my mom when we were having lunch that at 18 years old, I would say that I was going to be the best poker player in the world. And one thing that I say is that I just wanted it more than everybody else. I just put my whole life into it. When I was winning a lot, I played all day, every day. When I was when I lost everything, I was playing all day, every day. In the middle, I was playing all day, every day. I would just wake up, go straight to a computer back in the online days, play online all day. How do you distinguish that between someone who's just a gambling addict? Because there are a lot of people who did that, and then they lost everything, including like their family and their entire future. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's a tough line for sure, but it's like a skill that it takes a long time to build. So if you just go in and start gambling at high stakes in an early stage when you have a bunch of money, it's very likely that you're going to lose this money. Right. So it's completely different where I started with no money and I would build it up and then lose it all. You would have to win and then lose. So you're feeling like the sense of winning and losing. And to be able to win, you're going to need to put in a lot of work to be ahead of everybody else because it's a lot of other smart people who are playing right. cards. If you have money already, it's like it's a danger danger zone then pretty much because you can play high stakes very easily. You can right. lose a house. You can lose whatever amount of money just like casinos. I mean, I have friends who say that their friends have lost 200 million, 500 million US, like whole savings yeah. in casinos in Asia. That's so, yeah, yeah, it's very depressing. So, this is a, this actually gets to an aspect of poker, professional poker that's highly relevant to the investing audience. And this is the concept of risk management and bankroll management. And you talked about how you would go up and then you would lose it all and then go up some more and then lose it all. What have you learned over time about bankroll management so that you don't lose it all? Because ultimately, I mean, you were able to build back up, but from the uh, you know the investing game and trading, 
often if you lose it all, you're just out of the game and that's it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I tell everybody when when I see someone young and it's someone that I like, I try yeah. to always tell them, hey, pr- like just you have to protect your money because yeah. it's like your most valuable asset. Right. When you have money, it's very easy to build on the money if you're making good decisions, if you're a smart person. But it's very hard to turn no money into a lot of money. Yeah. Where people couldn't even be in, have done the same situation that I've done, where most of the time, if you lose all the money that you have, you're just out of business. You're out of the game. Yeah, yeah. How are you going to do anything else? I just did a lot of business with a lot of people where I would stake them or I would help them out and give them loans before or they would buy pieces of me. And since my word was always 100 percent and I made a lot of money for people, I would be able to get loans that were unheard of pretty much where there were points at 20, 22 years old where I owed friends half a million dollars with I mean, for the real world with no credit, no assets and somehow able to borrow half a million bucks and not have people even really ask you for it is pretty unheard of. Before we move on, I have to ask you a question. And at any level, these staking arrangements, how formalized are they? So if I were to stake you in one of these big tournaments, would we like sign a whole contract and everything so that there's no ambiguity? Or is it just like trust and respect. I mean, it's mostly just trust and respect, except if, I mean, if you're doing a big deal, maybe someone will have you sign a contract or if you're doing business with someone who's a businessman where they're used to always signing contracts for any type of deal that they have. Lots of poker deals have just been from just trust and I mean, that's a huge mistake, but it all comes down to a lot of when you're a kid and you start making a lot of money, of course, you're going to make uh, bad financial decisions where I was taking a lot of my friends, a lot of people that you thought were your friends and wouldn't sign a contract. And in the end of the day, they would just lie straight to your face about things to you. So you've made in tournament poker something like $55 million. Obviously, you have a lifestyle and travel to support and all that. Do you feel at this point that there's like there's no way you could ever go bust again? I mean, it's funny, though, because going into this year, I had, let's say, 25 million in cashes and I had a negative bankroll already. So. Oh, you did? (laughs) You were you were in debt even with the 25 million? Yeah, yeah. Because I had actually my first losing year ever last year. So let's say on a staking arrangement, I think I was down like 3.5 million going into this year and owed maybe another million bucks on the side from that. And actually I wound up in a in a spot where I think most people would have taken the easier route, where at the start of this year, the guy who stakes me, he's a very wealthy businessman and we became good friends. Yeah. He pretty much tells me, hey, the 3.5 that you're down, I think it's an insurmountable amount of money. I'm fine. We should just, we can wipe it away and start the number at zero. But the thing is, I've been in an unfair business deal before where I got screwed over completely. And I've always been completely fair, but actually it really made me think in every deal that I make with anyone, I always want to think on both sides and make sure that it's fair, that I'm not like using leverage or taking advantage of anyone, which like other people do. So as soon as he tells me this the thing is if i take this it means i took a completely unfair deal like it's easy to to justify that the money doesn't matter to them or so but for me it's more about morals where i just don't do it i never give up when things are bad actually i told him i said hey look uh don't worry i'm not gonna do this but 
let's just continue it how it is, and I'm going to be number one in the world again this year, and that's exactly what happened. So wait, just going into this, starting into this year, before this $20 million, when was the $20 million cash, by the way? It was in uh, the beginning of August. Okay, so up until, re- up until that, even with well, all I, this, I won a lot. Like from uh, January to August of 2019, yeah. I had won a lot and already cleared that number. But even still, going into 2019, technically you were like busted. Yeah. Well, I mean, worse than busted. Oh. Like I had to pay. I had to pay my next three and a half mil, give or take a few hundred thousand, in uh, winnings from poker, and I owed money on the side too. I was so I was way worse. I guess you could say worse or better because at the same sense, even if I'm down three and a half million, I get to play large buy-in tournaments. If my mindset's good and I yeah. get back to winning ways, I can win a big tournament for five million and have money. Well, at that point, I almost have money again since I owed a million on the side. So, I mean, no offense, if someone's listening to this for advice of like bankroll management, I mean, obviously your life is and trajectory has been extraordinary, uh, but it doesn't sound like you couldn't get back there again. Yeah, because I mean, I was I'm at like the top of the really, game, so it's But it different. sounds like you really like the massive swing. Is that fair to say? It was, yeah, I, I didn't mind the massive swings at all because- like, Were you stressed out owing, th- I mean, owing three and a half million dollars and not having anything? No, actually, to be honest, to start this year, I felt like amazing. I mean, the thing is, it, it's all relative. So as long as I can borrow money on yeah. like the number that I owe on the side to live whatever lifestyle that makes you happy, and yeah. that's like an agreed upon thing and no problem- then life is still fine. You don't necessarily... See, it's all about what you create as stress in your head, I feel like. Yeah. Where you can just eliminate things completely and just take it like it's breakfast where it destroys other people. You just... I mean, I accept whatever, wherever I'm at and just kind of have, have trained myself to have the mindset that you can only... You can't change the past. You can only make good decisions in the present moment. And right. sometimes like a big mistake, it'll take a long time to get you back to where you want right. to be. It's all about changing your mindset to where you maybe were playing huge stakes before a few months ago. And now you have to make a few hundred bucks a day just to like yeah. come back where, I mean, I've been in smaller ones where I had, let's say $3 million and six months later I had no money and owed my friends half a million dollars. Yeah. And at that stage you can't play high stakes anymore. You have to train your brain that you, you have to try to make 500 bucks a day and then try to raise it to a little, little bigger and bigger just to get yourself back to knock where you were just to build yourself back to comfortable or more comfortable and just take small wins. So do you ever think about just stopping? I mean, I assume you're, you have several million now after your huge win. You could just like or like play for fun i mean that's the thing to get so good at anything you have to love it also right so i mean every every athlete who's the best uh at what they do they all love it because you have to play all day every day yeah you have to make to be great at anything that a lot of other people want to be great at you just have to want it more than they do i mean you could say that there's some like natural born talent and everything there are reasons that make me good at poker that maybe ultra high stakes make what used to be considered high stakes seem boring to you like i'm thinking about like like beer drinkers who drink really high alcohol content ipas and then they can't go back to drinking normal beers because they can't even taste it 
Does the thought of buying into a $10,000 tournament just bore you at this point? Yeah, even like 25000 Even I start yeah. to think about like 50000 It doesn't really Like it just can't, it doesn't excite it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I played so much anyway, so I was transitioning more to playing less and going to places that I wanted to play and not just going to... Let's say uh, Florida, for instance, they have nice tournaments where the buy-ins 3,500, 10,000, 25,000, yeah. 50,000. I don't really have any interest ever to go there again and play. What about cash games against high rollers? Do you play those? No, because I spent so much time playing tournaments, I would just want to rest my brain for for time. Where some people play all night yeah. tournaments, cash games. For me, I feel my sleep is so important, actually. So I try to always make sure, unless if I'm, like, for the million, I was very antsy. Yeah. So I didn't sleep much, maybe five, six hours. But usually I'll try to get eight or nine hours, make sure I have rest and just, yeah, feel good. Because I feel like it's a long day of, of a mental battle where... The way that you're going to think and do your best is if your body is, not just your mind, body and mind is most prepared just to sit there and feel good and play good. So what's your next goal? Like, what are you, tr what are you trying to accomplish now? That's tough. I think my next goal is actually to, to be uh, healthier and try to have a healthier lifestyle. Because, I mean, hitting number one all-time winner... Yeah, it makes you, poker is like, okay, well, I mean, I did what I set out and said that I was going to do for so long. It's even, it takes a little time even to accept it in your head that that's reality because so much of poker is kind of convincing yourself like something and getting into a mindset where nothing really matters and you're so focused on exactly what you're focused on. Where when I was younger, I would say that plays a negative effect where you don't really think about, you can't really think about many things that are going on because you're so focused on one thing that everything else takes a hit pretty much. On that note, I think that's a good place to stop. Bryn Kenny, the number one earningest uh, poker player of all time on the uh, Hendon Mob database. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, great uh, being here. Nice talking to you. Yeah, that was great. Thank you. Yeah, for sure. Well, I'm sad that Tracy wasn't here, but I can't wait till she hears uh, this episode. You know, I don't really have any uh, extra thoughts. You heard it all there, so I'll just sign off. Uh, this has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter, and you should follow Tracy at Tracy Alloway. Check out Bryn on Twitter, at Bryn Kenny. And be sure to follow our producer on Twitter, Laura Carlson. She's at Laura M. Carlson, as well as today's guest producer, Topher Forges, who I've uh, filled in today. He's at Forges T. And be sure to follow all of Bloomberg's podcasts on Twitter at the handle at podcasts. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.